Hi, welcome to Chill Track Friday. Hello, hello. This is a bit of a preamble to our introduction. Um, we have a very special episode for you this week. We decided post-production to split it into two because it's so rich. So we have two episodes of about 35 minutes, and we're interviewing Roberto Mange. And the first episode is his professional career, and the second episode is since he has retired. So we hope you enjoy it. I think as people in general, but obviously this is sports related, we just need to be kinder to ourselves because at the end of the day, you are your own or best advocate and you live your life and your experiences. So it's so easy to focus on the extremes, like things are going really well or things are going really bad. And that's not life. Life is kind of like surfing like the waves and there's going to be you know you ride this wave you fall off you get onto the next one there's going to be highs and lows and um and sometimes it takes a few months or years to look back like that was not as big a deal as i thought it was like life goes on hi everyone welcome to episode two of chill track friday i'm ali i'm ann and today we have episode two that is called Pro Turn Recreational. And we have a guest. Who do we have, Anne? We have a very special guest with us today, Roberto Mange. He currently works as the senior manager of runner training and education at New York Roadrunners. Roberto is a retired Olympic distance runner and part-time fitness model. He represented Equatorial Guinea at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, running the 1,500-meter race. Other highlights include he competed at the IAAF World Cross Country Championships and the Xterra Trail World Championships, where he placed 7th and 5th, respectively, in 2012 and 2013. In 1994, Roberto moved to Westchester, New York, from Swaziland, where he was living with his parents. In New York, he attended Fox Lane High School, where he lettered in basketball, indoor and outdoor track, as well as cross country. And this is amazing. He debuted on the high school varsity team as an eighth grader after running a 458 mile in gym class. Prior to his move to America, Roberto had visited and lived in many different places, such as Mali, Egypt, France, Belgium, New Zealand, Spain, Germany, Equatorial Guinea, and Australia, just to name a few. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to Chill Track Friday, Roberto. Well, happy to be here. Uh, quite, quite the list. I actually I forgot most of that. So, <laughs> like, this is your life. <laughs> I know. Well, but I think a lot of people. You're such a humble person. A lot of people don't know all of your accomplishments. So, we yeah. did want to list them out. I, I knew all of this, by the way. So, <laughs> okay. um, I'm gonna back up a second. Right, we'll go to right in the middle of, but that was the most formal part, by the way. So from here on, it's just a conversation. All right, I'll take <laughs> off my tux. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so let's go to the middle of that introduction where she said, it "Just ran a four fifty eight mile in eighth grade." Why? How? Um, <clears throat> just I was new to the U.S. and when I was living in South Africa, we had something called field, <clears throat> excuse me, field day, and. It was a day once a year where just in, about the entire school would get together and run a, what a, some distance, you know, four laps around a field or whatever, and kind of just promoting physical fitness and, and movement. And I guess the U.S. was doing something similar with the um, presidential fitness test or something like that. So 
that mile was actually part of that. You know, I had to do X amount of pull-ups and sit-ups and this and that. So yeah, we went out to the to the track and ran a mile. And honestly, I think that might have been the first time I'd ever run a a mile that was timed or that I even knew I was running a mile. And yeah, I I just ran it like any other young kid at the time. Didn't think anything of it. And if if they told me the time, I had no frame of reference. I, I was told it was good. It was really good for an eighth grader. And the only reason I knew it was relatively good is because obviously I finished pretty far ahead of the other kids. Um, but that, yeah, so that, that's the only reason I, I did it and then just continued about my way, probably eating Skittles or whatever it is <laughs> I was doing at the time. Yeah. Do you come from an athletic family? <laughs> yeah, fortunately, uh, I always have to thank my parents. Um, my mom played um, a lot of basketball and football or soccer growing up. We call it football. Um, my biological father played professional football in Europe, which is soccer. Um, had another cousin that was a pretty good sprinter. I think he ran in the Olympics as well. So there's a lot of athleticism in our family. Not everybody has explored it to the level I have, but yeah, I mean, one thing I always like to say, genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. So my family definitely gave me the genes and then later on lifestyle kind of push those forward mm, I love that so you said your dad played professional soccer yeah my biological father I didn't yeah. grow up with him but yeah he, he played professionally in Wait, Europe what what team um, Rayo Vallecano mm -hmm. in Madrid so yeah that's cool so maybe he's to blame why um, I, I love the sport so much, you know. So you're a Manchester United fan, is that what you're Get saying? Get out of here. Podcast <laughs> over. Knock it, flip the table over. <laughs> FC Barcelona, come on. All right, yeah. all right. Is it's Ben Delaney is Ben Delaney somewhere around here? <laughs> ben Delaney doesn't even know this is happening, but we want him to be a guest at some point. So yes. I'm pretty sure he'll bring up you and Barcelona. I'll, I'll heckle him. So where to after the eighth grade? that after the eighth grade 458 mile what was you know what happened after that um, i know it's it's really interesting to know like it's kind of amazing that you ran this mile and you were like yeah i guess i was pretty far ahead of these people uh, other kids and then went on and picked up your skittles that's you yeah. know but but how did that kind of grow into something bigger? I should really have a sponsorship with Skittles by now because um, yeah. Skittles played a big part in my high school running. I honestly ran so many races with Skittles in my hand and my coach would be upset and it was hard to hide because, you know, they leave like the rainbow coloring in your hand. And, but um, no, I mean, um, from, from there on afterwards, uh, basically the rest of my high school career just, I gradually got better. But... My mile, funny enough, I ran 458 in eighth grade, and I didn't break five again till I was a junior, which is maybe a little known fact. I think I ran five flat point, every possible mm -hmm. decimal imaginable. And then my junior year, I went from five flat point whatever to, uh, I believe, a 442 in one race. Wow. <clears throat> I was a definitely late bloomer, so that affected a bit of my running mm -hmm. um, in the early days of um, my high school career. So... But that, and also I wasn't taking it too, too serious, you know, I wasn't as focused into running as maybe some of the other early prodigies would have been. I just enjoyed playing basketball and playing ice hockey and snowboarding and hanging out with my mates and yeah, so. So at what point, because you were at the 2004 Athens, at what point that focus shifted? So I'd already done some 
pretty good things in running cross country and on the track that year. So I started to get a bit of um, attention from local colleges and some national universities as well. So that's when I started to see that there was a potential future to continue running in, at the collegiate level. So I was like, okay, I should get serious because at that point in my life, I had never even done a 10 mile run. I was very undertrained. Um, and I remember my junior year, because we had a, a teammate who was ahead of me, a year older than me, he took me on a 10 mile run. And I didn't think I was gonna make it. I, I think I walked part of it and I was like, this is absolutely mental. Like, how do people even do 10 miles? I just started getting more serious. And then my senior year, I had some pretty lofty goals to, um, I wanted to win states and win, just try to win everything. And um, I think I went, I probably went undefeated for the vast majority of my senior year of cross country, which was always my favorite season. And I won the um, our sectional championship, which was a race to qualify for states, which was on the race on the course that was going to be hosting the state championship for all of New York that year. So, yeah, I was pretty pretty pumped and definitely got a lot more um, scholarship offers. So, while you were running and doing all the other sports, did you like running the most, or was it hard to kind of weed it out of the other sports? Um. I think my favorite part of running early on and probably till I called it quits was the fact that it was very much a sport that was so pure as far as I got out of it essentially what I put into it. Um, I didn't have to rely on, on a lucky shot from a teammate or opponent, a coach putting me in or not giving me enough playing time, uh, a teammate passing me the ball. or There was so little politics involved in it, especially in cross country where it didn't matter if you're primarily a miler or um, 5k runner or whatever you know this is like we're going to run from here to there and who could cover that distance the quickest and it was so fair seemingly you know like if there's a hill it's a hill for everybody and um, it didn't matter if you're 411 or 511 um, so i i enjoyed that because i could just focus on myself and control my my effort my energy and how hard i worked and i would kind of see the direct results in that where you know i grew up as many kids in my era did idolizing michael jordan and i had a life-size poster of him i remember i would measure myself against him and when i was hitting the grocery i was like okay i'm starting to get on and then i stopped <laughs> unless i'm gonna hit another one so you know it's the sort of thing where like okay maybe the nba isn't gonna come knocking on my door when i'm a 411 freshman or whatever but I'm, I could still run lights out and that's because of the talent but also the hard work so that's cool speaking of hard work at what point Athens became a reality obviously you had to go through all the other motions locally um, and what was it like training for it um, Equatorial Guinea started coming knocking on the door because they had when I was a junior senior in high school and there was a possibility for the uh, Sydney Olympics, but I just wasn't quite there at mm -hmm. the time. I was 17 or maybe almost 18. So um, at that point, I started contemplating Athens, and I was having some success in the 1500 and, and primarily the steeplechase and the collegiate level. So um, yeah, I just kind of started to focus more on on that, and kind of the same way I did in high school. I always just gradually got more and more focused and more and more serious, and kind of started to. Uh, 
you know, cut the fat a bit and not do as many other sports as I would do and start to focus. So, um, yeah, that was the case in, in college. So. Speaking of the nuts and bolts of training, um, what was some of that training like for the 1500 meter? Um, when you start to get up to that level, um, the training is just very, very specific because there's demand, the, the demands for a 1500 are, are different than the demands for a 5k or, or even a steeplechase. So obviously you want to have as big of an aerobic base as possible. And, um, but then when you start to do those workouts, you really have to specialize. So for the 1500, I remember this specific workout, probably one of the best workouts I ever ran. Um, we did it at the Olympic village about maybe four days or so before, uh, my heat in the 1500 and it was four by eight miles, uh, sorry, four by half a mile, 800 meters. And we did it on the practice track where the who's who of the Olympics were there. So there was a lot of that kind of buzz and energy. And anyway, I ran, um, I averaged 156 for each 800 and that's, I mean, that's like, that was my high school PB, you know, four ish years earlier and I, I could do four of them at that pace but what really impressed me and, and my coach at the time is the one that had me do it I wasn't doing them um 58 58 which is obviously more economical even split I was we were purposely doing um 60 56 um 61 55 you know purposely changing gears because we assumed that that would make it harder and that's how it would be run tactically um the 1500 so i was really pleased and i think the the rest i had was either a 200 meter jog or maybe or maybe a 400 meter jog um, which i certainly milked at the time but so you know the, the, those sort of workouts it's kind of what i was telling you guys before we came online that they were the kind of workouts that were there to bridge the physiological um gap with like the psychological gap because your coach at the time or your trainer whoever you're working with they see what's what 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 you're capable of but you don't always see it or believe it so they have to feed you the proper workout sometimes just to kind of make you believe it i remember doing that work i'm thinking oh yeah i i'll be good to go and um yeah so the the work was hard but it was also rewarding because as i said earlier the beauty about running is you kind of get out of it what you put into it so this was kind of the manifestation of a lot of hard work that i had put in that's really amazing it makes me think of it's also risky to do or i'm thinking about my own training like how risky it is to you know do those workouts that are the test because what if it goes bad you know it's like it's it's okay if it goes bad and i can talk myself off the ledge if it goes bad but it still always feels like so scary because you are going to get some very valuable information from a workout like that yeah that's the thing i think runners maybe humanity in general but runners we're so neurotic and we live and die by our best workout our best race and we wear what? that Never. are you calling me neurotic <laughs> yeah i'm speaking to you this is but, a compliment um, you know it is it's something that with experience and time i finally kind of got over and, and even working with a few uh sports psychologists but you're runners tend to think you're only as good as your last workout or your last race and the thing is unfortunately with with running and maybe sports in general you you train more than you race that's mm-hmm. just the nature of it because how else could it work so 
I know that I and many of my contemporaries, we had some of our best races in training. And that's not saying that you race training, but there's some days where you're out for a long run. And even if you run well within yourself, you're like, oh man, if only today was race day, like I just, I'm, I'm running on clouds. And I believe with me, I don't think we got it wrong, but I believe with me that day, maybe I was more relaxed because I knew it was a training versus the actual race. but. On that day, I was like, man, if we could just run the race today, like I could run within reason with anybody in the world. So um, it's it's just the nature of it. You know, we, we train more than we race, but the way I think to do it is just know that you're the sum of your training and you're not gonna be defined by any one workout. So had I not done that fantastic workout that day, I would not have known that I had it in me, perhaps, and I would not be able to speak about it years later, but I obviously had it in me. I would have just not, it would have not manifested itself. So you have to believe in yourself and in the work you're doing and know that there's always more there. It just might come out on Wednesday when you really want it to come out on Tuesday, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's some a lesson, one of the many lessons I had to learn, but you just have to be kind to yourself and and kind of really your best, your own best friend and advocate because you don't suck because today's workout didn't go well or because today's race didn't go well, you know? You, you've done the work, you have to look at the, the entire story. So it's not, a, it's not like in a movie where you're kind of enjoying it and the ending of the movie sucks. You're like, well, that movie did suck. It's like, well, let's just cut out that ending. And like, it was actually a pretty good movie. We just tweaked it, so. That's yeah. a really good analogy, I like that. Yeah. You always have very sage advice about the psychology and running and performance and getting out of our way and stuff. So just on that line, like what was it like getting, like standing on that starting line at the Olympics? And you've just had this great workout and Uh, here you are and you've done all this training. It was honestly um, terrifying (laughs) just because for me as a 21 or 22 year old, at that point, I was fairly well educated with the sport. I knew who um, the world record holder was and the and his storyline, Hikam El Garouge. And I think the day before or so, the heats were released. So you knew if you were in the first heat or second or third or whatever. And for the most part, I didn't really care or or know, obviously, some of the other, comp- many of the other competitors, uh, maybe just a handful. But I was a big fan of El Garouge and I knew his story and I knew that this was maybe his last chance at goal because he had faltered in both 96 and 2000. So there's a big storyline there. So as a fan of the sport and a fairly young guy, I was interested to see how these Olympics would go for him. And then I get, and then the heat sheets are released and we're in the same heat. I'm like, oh Christ, okay, Uh, that's one spot there. Um, It's like, do I ask for an autograph uh, after? So, so I was like, okay. Um, and then I can't remember how they do it, if it's alphabetical or absolutely random. But anyway, the way it turned out, we were not only in the same heat, um, but we were in, lined up next to each other. But long before that, you're in the practice track as all the competitors, so you can start to size each other up and you see people are nervous, some people are cool as ice. I was halfway between the gutter and the stars. And then eventually they take you into um, like a locker room, call room area, and that's where it gets very real because there's no coaches, nobody else is there, um, camera crews, nobody can see, it's just you and the other competitors putting on your spikes or whatever. And that's where I was like, okay, like 
we're starting to whittle this down. It's a room of, um, I don't know, maybe 40-something or 60, 60 people, and we're all going to be released at different times. So, you know, you put it on your bib, and, and I'm just, like, staying calm and thinking of that that phenomenal workout and thinking of all the scenarios that could possibly play out for the race and just how to best basically run my own best race but i'm also just like oh my god like there's a garage and everybody has eyes on him because he's coming in razor fit the world record holder yada yada um had run a phenomenal 5k the previous year at the world championships in paris so he was you know he was hot and we all knew it so anyway so then they march us out and you have your bag and you walk from the tunnel maybe 100 or 200 meters and i knew my dad was there and i couldn't really see him but you know i was pretty emotional about that and i knew my mom was watching and a bunch of people at home and um so you you come out to the stadium and it's still unlike anything i've ever experienced where you know the crowds are just like it's the olympics and the olympics are coming home because it's in athens and there's just so much energy that it's overwhelming like you could feel it and even talk about it kind of like takes me back and suddenly i'm like holy cow like what's going on this is bigger than anything i've ever done which obviously is the olympics but um so it's still you know keeping it cool staying relaxed but just you're kind of fight or flight you're like buzzing from the energy but you're also just you know i don't want to swear but you're scarish in this you know um so if we could beat that but uh anyway so then we get to our um our lanes you put your bag in like a bucket behind you everybody has a handler and I can't remember if that's the exact moment I knew or maybe from somehow in, in the call room, but that's when I was like, okay, we're lining up next to each other. And again, I'm pretty nervous now, but because it's him, he has so much attention. So everything he does is a, a camera crew from God knows what channel or channels um, being broadcasted to you know, millions and billions and probably close to billions of people around the world. And I'm right there. so every time he's doing something and I'm right there kind of doing my own strides, camera crew's right there and I'm just like, I just, just go that way, you know, like I just want to be alone with my thoughts. So, you know, I said a little prayer, um, still waiting for God to answer it. <laughs> it got stuck in my outbox, I guess. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I was definitely, definitely nervous. Um, and I think we, you know, gave a quick glance, shook hands and then got down and, and and then yeah the the race started but my god i was yeah i was definitely nervous uh i i think i had the urge to cry i didn't cry but i was just like it was just overwhelming you know um and years later i always go back and think man if my three years older or five years or 10 years older self could come back and talk to my 21 22 year old self i would just give me a pep talk like hey man just block it all out but it's just you know, trial by fire. Yeah. Olympic I, flame fire. Yeah, how do you how do you block that out? It's like kind of difficult. It's you, that's amazing. They don't teach just, you that. Yeah, you get like goosebumps and get emotional just listening to it. Like yeah. so this is the the final, the fifteen hundred meter final at Athens is my favorite fifteen hundred meter race to watch ever. Yeah. Um two parts. It's an amazing race to begin with because of how much El Garouge ended up winding it up every 100 meters. Amazing. Uh, plus, Bernard Lagat, I think, was was Lagat with him? Yeah. Uh, it, right behind him, he took second. Yeah, um, and Rui Silva. 
Yes. Yeah, from Portugal. Mm -hmm. And so when when I started group training at New York Roadrunners, um, Stuart had mentioned probably in one of his intros when you were when you were there, he's like, "Oh, this guy was in the Olympics," and you know, and then we went on from there. And I was like, "Oh, great! This, oh, wow, an Olympian here." I had no clue that you were at the heats of my favorite race. Yeah. Like, I had no idea. And I found that out accidentally where I saw a picture of you. When and where, I don't remember, but it's a picture of you. You're in focus and El Garouge is out of focus because the telephoto lens. And then, But I can tell that's El Garouge. And that's, I'm like, oh my God, he yeah. was in that. He was at Athens at 2004. So that was... That was really, really amazing to see, and yeah. kind of came to me as a surprise. I'd never even, I hadn't even asked him yet. We rewatched it uh, last weekend and prep for this. I've, I haven't watched <laughs> it in a while, but it's such a phenomenal race, and having been there live, yeah, I mean the stadium just bursted out, and I think I can't remember if it was, I mean, it must have been coincidental, but I was actually sitting pretty close to his family. So when he was doing his victory lap and came to celebrating, went over there to hug us wife and maybe his young daughter or something mm-hmm. i was a few rows back so yeah it was just a i mean the olympics are just such a great celebration of human yeah. sport and human achievement and to have been a part of that is is history and unfortunately not everybody could win obviously i mean el grish could tell you that it took him three mm-hmm. tries um but yeah it's, it's a very special memory and i think it definitely helped shape the outlook I had later on in, in my in my career and because after that as a 21 22 year old you can't get much higher you know and you can't get rattled by any other experience because now you've been at the at the top against the world record holder and an Olympic champion so it definitely helped put things in perspective it's just what a what a way to learn <laughs> yeah. it's interesting you you were saying something earlier about when you're working out when when you're doing a workout and then it's going really well and you're like why can't the race be today yeah and it immediately reminded me of el garuj himself because he was a phenom in like 96 and 2000 nobody would have doubted because he was just winning everything in all the championships but those were you know he and being nervous and he actually have in the documentary he talks about how nervous he was at the very first one he just being how, how regardless of how good he was he just could not handle that pressure yeah at the at the first one and he tripped um and then in 2000 Noni passed him at the very at sydney yeah and Noni passed him at the very last second um and then he this was it um this was it for him which was kind of incredible that that they worked out yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's uh what we're talking about 96 to 2004 mm-hmm. so it's an eight-year waiting period for him because mm-hmm. in that interim you know he'd set a world record and run the fastest time for 2k and and a phenomenal 5k and won some world championship but all that didn't matter he wanted that olympic goal mm-hmm. otherwise he was going to be deemed a failure so obviously i didn't feel any pressure in that sense but the amount of pressure he must have felt and also obviously put it on himself it's like you could feel it. So he, like I said, he was hot in that in that in that call room in that locker room, and you could just feel like, mm-hmm. like this is not just overall record holder. It's not just a history book, but this is a a man who's here on a mission, and he's not going to be denied. And yeah. 
all eyes were on him and obviously the the rest of the story we, we, has been told and, and four days later he went on to win the 5k too yeah he had Bikele and Kipchoge on the starting line with him outrageous I mean like I said he was just red hot those Olympics <laughs> I think if you put him in the tank he probably would have I don't know Bikele is a phenom too but yeah. you, you know it's this sort of things where if it's your day is your day and unfortunately Unfortunately and also fortunately, that's what makes the Olympics so special. It's once every four years, and you just have to be on on that day. And had my race occurred four days earlier or four hours later or whatever, it could have been a different outcome. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I kind of share something that El Guru shared in 96 where, um, you know, he tripped. I, I can't remember if it was over Noradine Morselli from um, Algeria. Algeria, but he, I, regardless, he tripped, fell. And he got up and it was inconsequential. And for me, it was something similar where um, Grant Robeson from the U.S. and one of the guys from the French team and myself, well, they, they kind of got tangled up. And either Grant fell or maybe they both fell. And in my attempt to try to jump over them or avoid them, I stepped on the guardrail, the inner rail of the track, which is maybe two or three inches high and popped my ankle. And, and that was it. I mean, I, I finished the race because... Is the Olympics, and I, I don't know, I had maybe 600 meters to go or less, but that was so disappointing because mm-hmm. I'd never felt like I got a, a fair shake at the showcasing the fitness I had and the race that just started because um, being that it was a heat and the cell grew, it was super tactical. So I said, you know, I'd gone out and run 156 average for 800s, and then we go out for that eight, first 800 or the 1500, and I think the field we were all between 203 or, or 204 and 205 because we were super bunched up and i have a photo somewhere at home and you just see all of this together and and the clock is like 205 which is a, it's a good 800 time but at that level it's absolutely pedestrian mm-hmm. and there's a lot of nervous energy and a lot of, a lot of skinny blokes with sharp elbows and we're just all you know poking each other and anyway eventually agrish had enough and he didn't want um, to get caught up in that and he just exploded to the front and and wound it up as he did it later on in the final. And when he did that, it kind of just had the accordion effect and people were trying to get around each other. And anyway, with those two guys going down, I tried avoid them, hit the guardrail, popped myself real good. And I was like, oh, Christ, I gotta, I'm done. You know, like every step I took, I was like, oh. but then again, it's also the Olympics and it's, you wanna obviously win, but you wanna do the best you can. and. I knew I was out there running, representing my fam- my family, my coach, my university, my, my country, and, and you know, I wanted to do it with honor, because if you just throw in the towel when things are going your way, then what sort of mm-hmm. message does that send to other people? And that would also make me a hypocrite, because that's mm-hmm. not my nature, so. Yeah. Yeah. So when it was over and you finished, could you, I mean, did you... Were you able to walk when you finished? Um, yeah, just obviously um, I still had my spikes on pretty tight and, and there's still that buzz and adrenaline and obviously anger. And um, the only photo that we have up of me at the Olympics at my house, and that's because my wife spent a pretty penny purchasing it from Getty Images, is me um, moments after crossing the finish line and El Grouge being um, such a, a sportsman um, was there waiting to shake the hands of all the runners and I think he had an idea that something happened because the crowd kind of gasped and he obviously could relate so um, there's a photo of me where I'm in the photo you see my face and you see the back of his head and you know we're just shaking hands and he's, I kind of have a, a dejected look with my 21 year old baby fat <laughs> or 22 year old baby fat but um, yeah it was just a, you know maybe half hour later then 
the ankle really swelled up and I knew I was done because the next day I was gonna I was meant to run the heats of the steeplechase and I was forced to just sit in the stands and, and watch that go off because I was able to walk maybe run maybe limp but the steeplechase if you don't know anything about that that is not a uh, an event you're gonna go into with mm-hmm. a no. with a bum ankle because it's too challenging in and of itself mm. wow but did it take a while for all of that to settle in like when you got home and um yeah I mean I, mean, I was still obviously at the Olympics for the remainder of it and I wanted to absorb as much of it as I could and as I said I was a fan of the sport and so I just you know no pun intended but I just took it in stride and and yeah I mean that night I was super upset um because that I, I don't think I'd ever really fallen in a race maybe once the first time I ran an indoor race <clears throat> in high school nearby here actually at the armory but um yeah I was frustrated because I could I didn't go into the Olympics thinking I was going to win Olympic gold but I knew that I was fit and I wanted to showcase that so I felt like I was robbed of the opportunity to get the most out of myself if that had still been um last or had been fifth or whatever as long as i gave my best then i could live with that but so i felt robbed so it took me a a while to put into perspective like hey i'm still an olympian um i'm I'm still healthy i'm alive i could continue training i could continue doing something i love but yeah i mean immediately you're going through you know all the stages of emotion like upset regret blah blah blah, blaming and but you realize that none of that's going to change the outcome so go through it properly but don't dwell on it so yeah yeah you have a very i mean one thing i really enjoy about getting to know you and work with you and get your coaching advice is that you have such a bird's eye view of things which is really helpful and putting i'm really tall that's why (laughs) (laughs) after your growth work yeah (laughs) um starcy just spoke Um. yeah i know it's just i like what you said about that basically that we aren't our last race you know we're the accumulation of all of the hard efforts that we put in and particularly when you're going through a setback i'm going through a setback so this is actually really helpful and beautiful to hear you talk about what you're talking about from also like years in advance and looking back on things and yeah i think as people in general but obviously this is sports related we just need to be kinder to ourselves because at the end of the day you are your own or best advocate and you live your life and your experiences so it's so easy to focus on the extremes like things are going really well or things are going really bad and that's not life life is kind of like surfing like the waves and there's going to be you know you ride this wave you fall off you get onto the next one there's going to be highs and lows and um and sometimes it takes a few months or years to look back like that was not as big a deal as i thought it was like life goes on and and obviously now as a as a father um that puts so much different spin on things in perspective um had i won olympic gold obviously people would treat me a little bit different but it wouldn't change anything and and my my kids, you know, they're still too young to know much, but my daughter, who's three years old, she thinks she's faster than me, and I love that. <laughs> she's as fast as a cheetah. That's so it so just, amazing. like, puts things into perspective where it's like, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change who I am as in the core. And, you know, and even somebody like you, you, it's so fun to watch your trajectory because there's still so much more that you're going to accomplish. And this setback, there's things that you can learn from it. But that's also life. I mean... Imagine being Al Grouge with the world 
watching you and and eight years in the making versus eight weeks for you or eight months or you know eight years under that sort of spotlight and pressure and he had the king of uh, Morocco's support and so you know everybody's living in their own biosphere and it's up to you to be kind to yourself and put things in perspective. Thank you so much for listening. In part two, we will discuss his post-retirement recreational life. Stay tuned.